You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be reading in just a moment, beginning in verse 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew 1 on page 757 of that Bible. In 2006, I had graduated from seminary. I was holding at the time two jobs. My wife and I had our first child in December of that year. Um, I, I was working um, in the morning and in the evening. I was going to school in the, in the afternoon. Uh, life was busy, and I was looking forward to getting my first pastorate when I graduated. Um, I didn't have many options. I wasn't well experienced. And so uh, I, I had been looking in a number of places and hadn't been hearing much. A friend got a hold of me and said, hey, uh, we, there's a church in my association down here in Tennessee who might be interested in you. And it turns out that they were interested in me uh, because their expectations for a pastor were about as low as my expectations for a church. They, they basically needed a warm-blooded male mammal who could stand up in front of them. And I said, that's me. I'm a, I'm a warm-blooded male mammal. And, and so we... we they called, and I, I said, hey, let's, let's meet up, and we met up, and we had a, a discussion about a number of different things. I had preached for them, and, and uh, it was clear that they, they wanted me to come, again, warm-blooded mammal, and um, so we sat down. We had a discussion about things, um, salary, and you know, where, where is the nursery in the building, where is my office, land use, things like that, so it's a very, very practical things, and um, I had noticed that at no point in time did they ask me really personal questions about my personal piety, and they hadn't asked me any theological questions. And so at the end of all of this, we, having talked about as many practical things as we could, I said, well, do you, do you have any questions for me, hoping that there might be something else there? And they said, well, we've got two, two final questions. One's for your wife. Does she play the piano? And she said, as quickly as she has ever answered anyone in her life, No. Um, they got over that disappointment years later, uh, but they did get over it. And uh, then they said to me, the only theological question that they asked me, do you believe in the virgin birth? And I said, well, of course. I believe in the virgin birth. They were excited with that. That was good enough. That was all they needed. And they said, hey, this is what we're going to do. We want you to come be our pastor. We'll get your wife some piano lessons, and you can come on, and we'll be... Well, they didn't say that, okay. So, But they, they, if we threw that out there, they probably would have. But anyways, they, they, they accepted me as a pastor. And the question then is, are they just... Are they that foolish? Was that, was that an incredibly stupid and silly thing to do? Were they ignorant? Certainly, we would want to say that they're imprudent at some level. They were... I don't want to use the word lucky, but there's so many apparent things that I, I, could have, I could have believed, that I could have taught. By the grace of God, that wasn't what I was. And so it certainly could have been worse for them. The virgin birth certainly doesn't tell you everything that you ought to know about someone. It's certainly not everything you ought to know about a pastor, but we should be honest. It says quite a lot. Why do we make so much of the virgin birth? I think a lot of people think that we make a lot of the virgin birth today 
because we're still sort of reeling from the scientific revolution and, and the way in which higher criticism and, and liberal criticism kind of came and critiqued the Bible and it looked at everything that it couldn't see in front of it, everything that didn't happen in the lives of, of scientists and of people who lived in the 18th and 19th century. And they said, well, if, it, if we can't see it, if we can't test it, then it must not be true. And we know virgins don't give birth, therefore it has to go. The church responds to it by holding up the virgin birth, by saying, no, 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 it, it happened. But that's not the total truth. It can't be the total truth. It, it's not just the church's instinct to fight against that skepticism that upholds the virgin birth as important. Almost every major creed of the early church included the fact that Mary was a virgin when Christ was born. If it was important to us in the 18th and the 19th and the 20th century, it was just as important in the third and the fourth. But that doesn't quite answer the question, why is it so important? In one sense, it probably isn't. It's not the most important thing in the Bible. I think someone could have real doubts about the virgin birth and still trust and hold to Jesus Christ as their Savior, the one who has come being the God of creation, incarnate in man. I think that because... Frankly, people can hold tons of irrational viewpoints at the same time. I think that denying the virgin birth casts real questions on the divinity of Jesus Christ and how the divine and the human in Jesus Christ work together. Nevertheless, I think that people can be irrational. The problem, though, is that it, it puts them in such a dangerous position. They find that they are crossing incredibly dangerous waters without the full assurance and protection of orthodoxy standing on their side. And what's more, I think it calls into question two very important things. First and foremost, obviously the truthfulness of Scripture. Because we have two accounts, both of which claim that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, you can blame a lot on the ignorance of people in the first century. But understand this, they knew what virginity was, and they knew what conception was, and they knew what birth was. So when they say... A virgin conceived and bore a son. They mean it. They understand what it means. The truthfulness of Scripture is called into question by that. But I think that there is something more important that reverberates from this. And that is the simple idea that God saves by his own magnificence and his own power and saves alone. Let us read Matthew 1, 18 through 25 and see what I mean by this. Follow with me, if you will. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name 
Jesus. This is the word of our Lord, truthful and good for us. The first thing I want to point you to this morning is to trust in the gift of God. Trust in the gift of God. If Matthew's genealogy left us waiting for the 14th, as we mentioned last week, the 14th generation in his listing of generations. We didn't have to wait very long. Here, he delivers it, I believe. The Holy Spirit is the one who has produced this child in the womb of Mary. Not by the way that these virgin-type births happen in other places. This is not unknown in the ancient Near East. We're going to talk about how It is fairly unknown to the Jewish people, but the Greeks thought that this kind of stuff happened all the time, that the gods would descend and and produce children with people. However, pretty clear that this is a distinction from the Greeks in a number of, of different ways. This Jesus appears to be, to us, divine, but divine in such a way that the Greek gods and their sort of half-breeds with human beings never were. Those people were automatically sort of demigods. They were a halfway between man and God. But this Jesus doesn't appear to be like that at all. He's something completely other. And by being completely other, we mean completely like us. He is fully human in all of his ways. But it also doesn't happen in the normal mode of conception the way it did with those gods. Here, Matthew tells us little about how all of this happened. He doesn't explain how the genetics worked. He doesn't explain how the Holy Spirit forms the child in the womb. He simply reports that it happened. Two times in this passage, we have the reference to it being from the Holy Spirit, that this child is from the Holy Spirit. If you look around the world, sometimes people carry in their name a sense of family or place. So if you're from Ireland or you're from Scotland, it might be Mick or Mac. If you're from German, it's the word von. Von in German simply means from. So if you met a man named Claude von Stupendorf, that means that he is Claude from Stupendorf. I don't think Stupendorf is actually a place in Germany. It could be. I don't know. It sounds German. Jesus is like that. He is, he is sort of Jesus von Spirit. He is Jesus from the Spirit. It tells you of, of where he is from. It tells you of his people. This is who he is. Immediately, Matthew introduces us to the centrality of the Spirit in the life of Christ, which is incredibly important as we press forward. It becomes the centerpiece of Jesus' early life and is meant to be understood as driving Jesus throughout the rest of his ministry, even though talking of the Spirit and the working of the Spirit in the life of Jesus isn't quite as explicit as it is early on. Nevertheless, these early instances are meant to say the Spirit is there, present in the life of Jesus. He is conceived from the Spirit. He is breathed in by the Spirit. He is anointed with the Spirit. He is carried by the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. He is filled with the Spirit. He is known in the Spirit. Jesus is the man of the Spirit par excellence. And this means that his coming is, quite importantly, separate from any human work or action. God did not choose to simply bless the union of Mary and Joseph. He didn't wait until two people of the right stature and the right genetics and the right right sort of moral makeup came together and produced a child that was holy enough and good enough. God didn't sort of tweak first century Jewish uh, couples.com to make sure that they, they worked together and they, they had exactly what he wanted. Rather, he did this all on his own. The people were not 
sitting around shouting for God to come down and become incarnate. They weren't expecting this. They didn't have this rooted in their expectation. Even as Matthew says that this is a a fulfillment of Scripture, nowhere did the Jews actually think that this was how the Christ was going to be born. This wasn't a, a messianic expectation. They had a lot of expectations for the Messiah. This was not one of them. The gift of Jesus, the gift of salvation was wholly a work of God and thus wholly a gift to mankind. This is even part of the meaning of the name of Jesus. He will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, as many of you know, is related to the name Joshua in the Old Testament, and it is the word Yeshua. Yeshua simply means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is our help. God is our help. God is our Savior. Shortened up, it simply means God saves. It's important that his namesake plays for us the very idea of God saving, God helping his people. Joshua is known as a great commander in the Old Testament. He is the one who takes over from Moses and will will provide the people the promised land. He will lead them into the promised land. But his leading is quite odd. We're really only told of a handful of battles that occur in all of the time of the book of Joshua. The two most important coming right away. The battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. And we see immediately what it means for God to save his people, for God to lead his people, for God to give them salvation, and what it means for Joshua and the others to take over. In Jericho, God simply says, go, and you're going to circle, circle Jericho, and then you're going to do it again, and you're going to do it again. And at no point in time does any of this sound like this is an, an actual military strategy. Believe it or not, they don't teach that at West Point. This isn't something that is done. The whole point of it is that at the end, seven times they will go around and blow the horns, the walls fall down, and and the people are there for the taking. All of it is due to the work of Yahweh. It is God giving them salvation. When they attempt to do things on their own, it ends disastrously. Joshua leads his people by letting God give his people the victory. That's what his name means. Jesus will do the same. Jesus will give his people salvation But because he is God, he will do it himself. He is a gift to us. This birth seems unique, and it is in a sense. The closest we come to it in the Old Testament is likely Sarah. In sort of a reverse fashion, certainly Abraham and Sarah had tried many times. She's not a virgin, but she's on the far side of life. Her womb is far past the childbearing age when God visits her and brings forth a child. While we don't have many analogs in the Old Testament, believe it or not, we've got a ton of analogs in the New Testament. For Paul and John, being born again is through the exact same mechanism, it seems, that Jesus was conceived and born. So John tells us that It is the work of the Spirit that comes upon us by which we are born again. And and Nicodemus asked that very sort of cynical but straightforward question, is a man to enter into the womb a second time? And the answer is no, because this, this isn't the birth through normal means. This is a birth through, if you would, more than a virgin. There's no woman present for this birth. This is a birth wholly and fully of the Spirit. Paul says basically the same thing in Galatians. A right understanding of Galatians forms the idea that we are saved by the promise and the work of the Spirit, not by the works of the law. 
The whole point of that is that it is completely and wholly a gift. This is highlighted by the the very ending of the allegory in Galatians, where, where Paul quotes from Isaiah, where Isaiah says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, and break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who has a husband. The point is that in the end, God is going to bring forward children, not through natural birth, but through spiritual birth. The same spirit that brings Jesus into the womb of Mary is the same spirit that brings us into the presence of God, who gives us new birth. Just as Jesus is a gift from God, the gift of salvation comes to us in much the same seed. Not of normal seed, but spiritual seed. And one of the reasons that the church has long decried the law as a way to salvation is exactly this. The law speaks of your own volition, your own desire, the, the doing of your own hands and feet, making the commands sure in your own abilities. The Spirit speaks of this being a promise and in other times, nothing less than a gift. This is the testimony from the very beginning of the gospel. The very foundation of it is this virgin birth, that Jesus is this gift given wholly and completely and utterly by God, a God that can't be bribed and bought or bartered with. This is a gift that you can't repay or earn and certainly not be responsible for. So to receive this gift, you must treat it as though it is fully a gift. You must lose everything. You have no claims on God. You must lose all sort of ideas that you can repay him or or earn what he has given. You've got to lose all ideas that you deserve this because he is God and this is what he does. You've got to lose all ideas that, that you deserve it more than others because you're a little bit better than them. To receive this gift, you need to lose everything. This is unlike any other gifts that we give. We give gifts on certain days, typically because that's what we do. We give gifts on birthdays. We give gifts on Christmas. My kids don't clamor for gifts. But I have no doubt that if my kids' birthdays came and we paid them no respect, not, not that we didn't respect them or love them, we might have said happy birthday to them, but, but we didn't buy gifts for them, we didn't pay any attention to them, they would feel slighted. There's, there's no doubt they would feel slighted because we've given them the expectation that this is what is going to happen on that day. And they might not use the word do, and I'm not trying to, to, to pinpoint them. I think we all feel this way. There's an expectation built in. It's supposed to happen. That is what's supposed to occur. That's not what this is. This isn't supposed to happen at all. There's no expectation from God. There's no sense in which God needed to do this, had to do this. It is a pure gift given to us completely outside of any work that we have done. When we come to this gift, when we accept this gift, we do it only when we know that we have nothing. When we come to the loss of ourselves, only then can we find everything in it. Or to put it a better way, as some guy said one time, the one who wants to save his life must lose it. But the one who loses his life for the sake of Jesus, we'll find it. Trust in this gift of God. But secondly, 
We also need to take on the goals of God. We need to take on the goals of God. We would greatly, I think, mistreat the text if we were only to speak of what God does here because obviously the text is about more than just the work of God and bringing forth Jesus Christ. It quite clearly centers on Joseph and his relationship to Mary and the commandment that is given to him. It concerns his actions and how those actions play into the plan of God. Before we we do that, importantly, I want to talk about what it says in verse 19, that he was a just man, that he was a righteous person. I think that sometimes that kind of language bothers us, but we need to be comfortable with it. The Bible speaks of justness or righteousness, and I would, if I had to catalog them off the top of my head this week, I would probably do four of them. We're only going to talk about three of them, but at least three of them, and all three of them matter to this particular passage. What does it mean for Matthew to call Joseph a righteous man? Well, the first way that we speak about righteous and and about people being righteous tends to be in reference to what Paul says when he says, no one is that thing. No one is righteous. What we mean by it is, can someone stand before the meticulous inspection of God whereby he looks at every fabric of thought and and desire in your life to see if there's any spot or blemish or failing, any sin at all, will it pass inspection? And if you are blameless and faultless in all of your doings, then you're righteous. It is that kind of righteousness that Paul says no one has. No one is righteous. No one will stand to the judgment of God. No one will be justified before God on the basis of what they have done. But sometimes, the Bible uses that exact same word not to talk about that sort of atomistic, legalistic type of righteousness, but to talk in general terms about the quality of someone's life. This is exactly what happens here, for instance, although I think that this is actually the third meaning a little bit closer. But it also occurs in the birth narrative of Jesus when Luke talks about Elizabeth and Zechariah. He says quite clearly and straightforwardly, they are both righteous. It doesn't mean that they don't need the salvation that is afforded to them in Christ. What it means is their their lives follow sort of the contours of what God lays out for them to do. They follow it closely. They were not flagrant sinners. They did what they could to follow the path set by God. Generally speaking, they walk in the way that the righteous people ought to walk. And in that, it is free to call them righteous. It doesn't mean that they're perfectly spotless, but it means that they themselves have tried to do their level best at what God has required. And still, to be honest, we don't use that kind of language much. In fact, we use that kind of language so little that to use that kind of language is to call into question, in a number of different contexts, whether somebody knows the gospel or not. I mean, imagine somebody getting up here and saying, as I heard someone say recently, In different language, I tweaked his language a little bit. You'll see why. Imagine someone getting up and saying this. The Lord saved me because I was righteous. He rewarded me because I'm completely innocent. I did what the Lord commanded, and I have not abandoned God. Immediately, if someone were to stand here and say those words, we would be aghast. We'd say, that's not how you want to talk about righteousness. Brother, you better, you better walk that back lest the judgment of God fall on you. And David, 
who basically uttered those words says, no, I'm, I'm okay, friend. I think I know the Spirit. That is nothing but an adaptation of Psalm 18, which says this, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the, the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. The difference between how we talk about righteousness in, in that moment for David and the way we generally talk about righteousness is David's talking about a specific situation, which is really the third kind. That in this situation, men were seeking his life. And David's point is not that he's perfectly righteous and holy in all of his dealings, but that he is righteous in this matter. They're seeking his life and there's no reason why he should die. He's done nothing wrong. He holds up his hands and he says, I'm innocent. And when God delivers him, God delivers him precisely because of that. He's saying, it's not grace. He didn't, he didn't let those guys not kill me because he was gracious to me. He did it because I was innocent. In this sense, he's righteous. I think that that's precisely what's going on with Joseph here. You might want to say that he's, he's generally got the contour of somebody who is righteous in his life, but I think that this is specifically talking about his righteousness in this moment. Why even mention that he's righteous here or just here? Is it just an interesting fact? Probably not. At one level, it's clearly just what we might call apologetics. Think of what, what actually would have happened in the life of Joseph and Mary. Again, they understand what conception and pregnancy and birth entail. And so people can put this together. They had ten fingers too, so they can count up to nine months. And when Mary and Joseph haven't come together and she's giving birth in month three of their marriage, people are able to go, something funny is going on here. And if Joseph marries her, immediately Joseph is the source of that gossip and shame. Because if he wasn't the one who fathered that kid, there's no reason why Joseph would ever have married her. And so, at least on one level, this is an apologetic for Matthew to come in and say, well, I know it seems like Joseph did wrong, but, but he is, he's righteous. He, he, there was no impropriety. He, he, didn't, he didn't lead her in, in bad paths. He didn't take advantage of Mary. It's nothing like that. But I think that this entire episode, specifically about Joseph, is mentioned because of his importance, which is a bit odd because Mary gets all of the mentions, and I think rightly so. When you take on a child as your own in the first century, they are considered fully and completely yours. You treat them as though they are your child. Jesus, being the son of David, has to be linked to Joseph. It cannot be linked to Mary. And so, while all of this is the gift of God, the entire plan of God, of being able to call Jesus the king of the Jews, of being able to link him back to Joseph, or excuse me, back to David, hangs on whether Joseph is going to marry or disavow Mary. All of it hangs on it. All of it. So Matthew includes this because that is the important, that's exactly what his, his genealogy was trying to do. It links Jesus to Joseph and Joseph to David. And here we find this interesting bit the same passage that speaks so much of the fact that this, as a virgin birth, is God's gift to us. It's God's work. It's God's only doing. The same passage speaks of God's desire and his wisdom to have human beings play a role in that gift. 
God doesn't need human work, and the gift isn't received based on it, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't use it. That plan that God will allow humans to play a role in the coming of his kingdom does not just include Joseph and Mary and even the early disciples and apostles, but it includes all of us. And here, of all places, we need to admit that not only should we believe that God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines, repeatedly throughout Scripture, we must admit that God is most pleased to use those who are most pleased in him. That is, it is his greatest pleasure to use those who pursue righteousness. And that doesn't mean that he can't use other people, for he does, and indeed he will continue to do so into the future. But God rewards those who pursue him by allowing them to take part in the plans of his kingdom, perhaps in ways that they can't foresee or imagine. This is simply the idea that God rewards those who seek him. After all, this is in his nature. Hebrews 11 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, fair, and that he rewards those who seek him. Part of the rewarding of those who seek God is giving them a hand in the working out of his kingdom and giving them a hand in the eternal work that God is doing. And if we take this seriously, then we would pursue righteousness with a passion. That's part of what Jesus means when he looks at his people, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You shouldn't hear that simply as saying, you can't do it. You've got to give it up and just let me provide righteousness for you. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't work that way. What he is saying is you need to pursue good righteousness with your heart. We find Joseph as a wonderful illustration of exactly that. I, I want to point out three different levels of his righteousness here just to give you a little bit of a glimpse into his life. First, there's a sense of sort of individual righteousness here. This is, this is Joseph holding up his hands and saying, I've done nothing wrong here. Mary's with child, it wasn't mine. I, I have not gone against the law of the Lord. I, I have not done anything wrong. Individually in, in, him, in himself, he, he has not acted in ways that are sinful. He is righteous and just. This is what we mean when we put up our hands and say, I, I am guilty of nothing. I have done no wrong. It means that we have not done the things that God has forbidden, nor have we kept back the things that God has commanded. We've done no wrong. This is the first step of righteousness. It's an incredibly difficult step, and it's a step that we oftentimes fail on, but it is only the first step, but it is not the last. Secondly, we find out that he was what I might want to call and these are all bad words, apologize for that, but socially righteous, that his righteousness extended beyond just his innocence. We are very bad about having our righteousness extend beyond our own individual I'm not guilty type of thing. This is the world we live in. The world we live in finds it to be enough to be able to stand up and say, my hands are clean, I'm innocent. But Joseph brilliantly goes further than that. It not only says that he was just, but he resolved to divorce her quietly. Imagine the love that goes into that. Presumably. We don't know this. 
this is like the only inference I can think of. He has to know that Mary's with child, otherwise he wouldn't divorce her. Mary likely told him, because I can't imagine her starting to show and him coming to her and asking her about it and being like, oh yeah, we didn't talk, um, so this happened, right? So she's coming to him and telling him, and certainly she, she looks at him and says, yeah, so weird thing this, I'm pregnant with the Holy Spirit's kid, and like immediately Joseph is not gonna, he's not gonna buy it. Like, that's not a sinful thing. If somebody comes to you and says this, there's, again, no expectation in Jewish history at all that that was supposed to happen. People weren't, weren't hoping that as virgins they got pregnant so that they could give birth to the Messiah. No one expected it to happen this way. So she comes and tells Joseph this. There's 50 billion people in the history of the world, and it happens to your fiancé. You're like, no, that's not true. The only reasonable expectation or a reasonable inference from that is that she did that with somebody else, bringing shame upon his name, harm and hurt to him, and it, all of that. He didn't have to divorce her quietly. He didn't have to seek that. He could have loudly proclaimed it. He could have retrieved, if you would, his honor by distancing himself so vocally from her. The law does not hold out that if, if you are going to send a wife away, that you must do it quietly, you must do it gently, you must do it kindly. People wouldn't have even batted an eye. They would have upheld Joseph's decision to do it and thought him to be virtuous and righteous because of it. But quite clearly, this is just an extension of him loving his neighbor as himself. He looks upon Mary. He has pity on her. He has mercy on her. Knowing not that she is actually carrying the Holy Spirit's child, but thinking at the time that she committed this immoral act, bringing shame upon him, and yet wanting to divorce her quietly. He is socially righteous. But that, even as it is his neighborly love, is not the highest righteousness that he achieves here. Lastly, Matthew is portraying Joseph as vicariously righteous. That is, he is righteous for the sake of others. Mary suffers much. We want to be really clear about that. If you go to Luke, Luke focuses so much more on, on Mary, doesn't focus almost at all on Joseph. Matthew focuses on Joseph, really pays scant attention to Mary. But Mary suffers much and is to be applauded in all her ways. Amazing woman. The angel comes to her, and there is such a distinction between how the angel speaks to Joseph and how the angel speaks to Mary. When the angel shows up and speaks to Mary, he doesn't tell her to do anything. He simply tells her what's up. He says, this is going to happen. You don't have a choice in the matter. I'm not asking for your permission. I'm simply coming to you and I'm saying, this is what's going to happen. And Mary, to her extreme credit, knowing the social implications of what just got, no one's going to believe her. No one's going to believe her. Knowing all the social implications of what's said, she's like, this is awesome. Like, I, I'm chosen to do this? To carry the anointed of the Lord? And she just bursts forth in praise. Holy praiseworthy. But there is a difference between what Joseph does and what she does. She doesn't have a choice. 
the angel presents Joseph with a choice. Do not fear. I'm commanding you to marry her. And commands might be severe, but they can be broken. The moment that Joseph says, yeah, I'll do this. He, he heard the word from Mary. He knew Mary's character, presumably. He, he knew her well. It sounded like a weird, fishy story out of character for her. The angel shows up. He's now got that sort of legal, the, the Torah's uh, desire to have two witnesses to what's going on. He, it's an angel, so he says, hey, I believe in the angel. I believe the word. But the minute that he says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go forward with marrying her, notice what he has to do. All of the implications of sin, all of the, the, the rumors that would have been spread and the gossip that would have happened, the, the righteous Joseph would have had his name dragged through the mud. He, he takes upon him all of the wretchedness, all of the social suffering that would have been on Mary alone. And he relieves her of some of it because no doubt they would have looked at him first and foremost. No doubt they would have thought that the sin was his first and foremost. The child must be his. He must have done wrong. It was not his burden. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his doing. But he gladly bears it for the sake of the Lord and the sake of his kingdom. This is the kind of righteousness that we are called to. Not... Not just like, I didn't do anything wrong. That's great. If you can say that, that's important. That's the Pharisee's righteousness. Christ calls you to more. He calls you to love your neighbor as yourself, but more than even that, to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. This is why Jesus says, take up your cross. It doesn't just mean that you die to yourself. Because Jesus didn't just go to the cross to die for himself. He went to the cross to die for other people. You take up your cross means that you lay down your life for the good of others. You suffer righteously for them. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say that those who beg from you, you should give to. If they ask you or they sue you for a tunic, give them your cloak. Be willing to suffer loss for the sake of others. But it wasn't just the general commands of Jesus, we find this modeled for us all through Scripture and even through the history of the church. The early church sells their goods, their, their profitable things, so that they might bring it, set it before the apostles. They suffer the loss of those things so that the people who have not might have something. Paul says this amazing thing in Colossians 1. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul's not even saying, I'm suffering solely for Jesus. And if it benefits you, that's great. His whole point is, I'm suffering for you. I will put myself in harm's way for you. I will do what is necessary for you. It's not just the early church and Paul. The fathers did this. The martyrs continually did this. Missionaries continually did this. The reformers did this. All suffered so that the truth might be known, for the truth to be proclaimed, for Jesus to be glorified, not just generally in the world, but in you. 
not simply so that we can stand up and say that we've done nothing wrong, but to be able to travel on the paths of righteousness so well that to take on the sufferings of others becomes a second nature to us. We get no sense that Joseph even bats an eye at this. It is commanded, so he does. This is what our Lord has done. He takes on our nature. And when he does that, he takes on to himself the necessity of suffering. To know our nature is to know our weakness, our frailty, to know and experience suffering and tiredness and frailty, exhaustion, oppression, pain, death. All of this was to be Jesus because he became human. Yet he does this for us. And he calls us to the same kind of righteousness. To be people who are willing to suffer for the good of others. To be a people who are marked not by an individual righteousness, but by the best kind of righteousness, the, the very thing that the church is when it is the best, suffering for the good of other people. This brings us back to the importance of the virgin birth. Why is it important? Simply put, to deny the virgin birth is to deny that God can even do it, which frankly has to call into question everything else. If God cannot conceive a child in the womb of Mary, then how can he raise the dead? Then how can he give life and salvation to people as sinful and wretched as us? How can he do those things outside of our help? If he can't do the first step, what makes us think that he can do step 9,823? Salvation is of God. It calls into question the very meaning of the name Jesus even saying the name Jesus means that God saves us. It calls into question the very purpose of his name. It calls into question the very meaning of they called him Emmanuel. It calls into question the goodness of God's word to us, the power of his work, and the right of us to declare that salvation is by grace alone. It denies even the suffering of Mary and Joseph because if it didn't happen the way it says, certainly the suffering that they would have gone through would have been of their own doing. The virgin birth helps us to keep these things central. And therefore, it is not just good, but right that we insist with the creeds. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. This is for you and for your salvation. Trust the gift of God and suffer righteously for the good of others. Let us pray. Father, we stand as those who have received the fruit of the sufferings of those who have come before us. Let us be those who are willing to suffer for those who will come after us. That your name and the truth of your word might be praised in the sight of all men. Give us strong hope in the gospel that will outshine even the love of our very own lives. May we live for the glory of our God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.